Hi, I'm Hilary Gramlich. Our reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. It's good to be, it's good to be with you again this morning. Um, We've been meeting the past two weeks here. One of the beautiful things about being here is we're just down the street from First Baptist Church and we can hear them worshiping on Easter Sunday. I don't know if you guys heard that as well. We had the, the beautiful kind of sounds from both sides of uh, this, this part of Vienna with our music and then when we were quiet, their music. And it was just a great gift to know that there are brothers and sisters in Christ as we share together in worshiping Jesus this morning. So that's what you hear in the background is First Church just over there. So this morning we're asking a question that doesn't really fit very nicely with Mother's Day. Are you greedy? So if I say, are you greedy? The natural inclination is to think of a caricature of somebody who's greedy, which in a uh, you know, in, in written form, in, in kind of a caricature of a character, it's Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Are you greedy? Well, and you think, no, I'm not an Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Poor Bob Cratchits, they're freezing. You would have given him a couple pieces of coal, right? You're not that kind of a guy or girl. So the question then is this, how would you even know if you had a greed problem? The Bible seems to talk about it as a pretty significant issue and one that we tend to be blind about. How would you even know if it was an issue in your life? Let me give you an example of things you do know. The Bible says don't commit murder. You know if you've committed murder, right? You know if you've committed adultery. You probably know if you're lying, even if you try to hide that you're lying. In fact, even Jesus, when he says it's not just murder or adultery, it's 
um, being unforgiving and bitter and angry towards a brother or sister or having lust in your heart towards somebody. You know if you're lusting, if you're unforgiving, if you're angry. And if we have self-awareness, we can admit that we have an anger problem or we have a control issue. We, we can admit these things. So a lot of our failure and weakness we can admit. But greed, we don't see. How would you even know if you have a love of money problem? And just as a hint, we all have a money problem. We all have a love of money problem. And we all have a not fully healthy relationship with wealth and money. We just do. Every human does, and we in the West are especially prone to it. So assume that you have some issue, and the question is what? How does it play out? A prime indicator of the extent of your money problem is your tendency towards freedom in generosity. So when you think about generosity, all of us probably give in some ways. There's generosity that every human has. When you give, do you tend to give a minimum? Check the box, not feel guilty, okay, I'm, I'm a giver. Or do you determine a rule, a rule inside of your head based on what you think is kind of average, makes you look like an average, pretty good person? You wanna give what everyone else gives? Or do you just give? Do you just give generously and freely, even if you don't get a tax write-off for it? Do you give constantly, consistently, sacrificially, freely, and joyfully? It's not an anxiety in writing the check or giving the gift. You know, over the past four or five weeks, we've talked about generosity, and generosity is much more than money. It has to do with God's love for us, the abundance of the creation that he gave us, God's love for us in Jesus on the cross, and how he calls us into being generous people of, of generous spirit who are giving and forgiving and loving of others in a way that is just generously giving of ourselves. So generosity has to do with much more than money. But it does not have to do with less than that. Jesus talked more about money and wealth and possessions than he did about heaven and hell combined. We think Jesus' message is about getting to heaven and avoiding hell, but he talked about our wealth and our possessions more than either combined. He talked about our wealth and our possessions more than he talked about sex or prayer or following him. The only thing he talked about more is the kingdom of God what it is to live as disciples in his kingdom. And I think if we're gonna take him seriously and the Bible seriously, what we do with our money, our wealth and our possessions matters. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about a collection of money, a charity collection that he is going to take and give to the poor in Jerusalem. So Paul had planted churches all over the Mediterranean, and he was in the midst of his travels, and he writes a letter to the Corinthians about a collection that he is gathering from the various churches on his way back to Jerusalem. And what he's intending to do is bring a collection from all of the churches he visits to the poor in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem was particularly poor. They were a persecuted church and they were primarily Jewish. And he was visiting the Gentile churches, the Greek and Roman churches that he had planted. And what he saw was an opportunity 
for the Gentile church to bless the Jewish church, which was where Christianity had started as Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And it was a way to give back and to fulfill Paul's vision. Paul's vision was that the mystery of the gospel, the great goodness of the gospel, was that Jew and Gentile are brought together in one family. This was the high point of Paul's gospel. It amazed him, it blew him away, that Gentiles were allowed in by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not because of anything they did, not because of any outward markings, but simply because of Christ. And Paul wanted to bring that to bear and let that be seen and celebrated. How God in Jesus Christ has reconciled Jew and Gentile into one family. And this was one more way of doing that. Of the Gentile church saying, we are in the same family as you. You are in need. We're going to give to you. And so Paul asked the Corinthian church, who were primarily a wealthy church, compared to many other churches, to give generously. And he gets very practical with them. He talks about how he's going to send Titus and two other brothers from other churches as a financial accountability. They're going to go ahead, and so when Paul gets there a few months later, they'll be able to gather the collection. And Paul's intention is for them to be intentional. Plan ahead. I'm going to be there in a few months. Don't just wait for me to arrive. Consistently, weekly, monthly, set aside some money so when I get there, you can give generously over the course of a couple of months. And we can give generously to support and bless the church in Jerusalem. But ultimately, he wants it to be personal as well. He says, I want you to give according to what is in your heart to give. This is not me compelling you. There is not some exact number. I want you to look into your heart and give what is in your heart to give. And yet, after all of this, Paul seems a little concerned. that when he shows up in Corinth, there's not going to be a very good and generous collection. And so he pulls out all of the rhetorical stops. And the first thing he does to rhetorically convince them is he uses guilt. He says to them in verses 1 through 5, you can see it, he uses the Macedonian church's comp competition. He says, don't, don't you want to keep up with them? He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, so they were dealing with persecution themselves, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, so they, they had joy even though they were poor, has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And this, not as we expected, but, to, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. So think about that. The Macedonians were a very poor and persecuted church. And yet they gave generously, a wealth of generosity. In other words, by any standards, they gave more, a, a large amount. And for them, this was incredibly sacrificial. They gave beyond their means. It was almost like Paul was saying, please don't give anymore. And they said, no, please let us give more. This would be like if um, Bishop John, the, the bishop of our churches in this area, he's coming to visit us at the end of the month. If he came and he said, hey, I want you to know I am doing a collection for 
Christians that are Syrian refugees and in refugee camps outside of Syria. And we're going to do a collection. And I've just come back from the church in Nepal. And you know your sister church that you're trying to develop a relationship? The uh, Revival Church with, with Pastor Daniel that's in the slums of Kathmandu? They've taken part and they gave generously. By even American standards, they gave generously. And this is a church in the slums that is your sister church. Don't you guys want to give something too? It's a little bit of guilt, a little bit of competition that he's trying to get them to do. But he doesn't just use guilt because that doesn't go far enough. Everyone knows that. Guilt's only going to motivate you so far. He uses reason as well. And the reasonable uh, thing that he argues is for equity. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 13 and 14, which is not in your section here, Paul writes, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. This is actually a New Testament ethic, that of equity, that if you have abundance, you should share with those in need. And abundance isn't necessarily what you have in Vienna and other people in Vienna have, right? So he's saying, don't just look at your neighbors in Corinth. Look beyond that around the world. Look at what God has given you. How can you in generosity live towards others? And he's saying, look, I don't want you to become poor in your giving. Give everything away and you become poor and then they need to give to you. But rather just that in your abundance, you would supply, meet some of their needs. They are in extreme poverty. Meet some of their needs out of your abundance. The New Testament builds an ethic that is built actually out of an Old Testament ethic that suggests this. There is a level of inequity in poverty and wealth that should be intolerable for the Christian church. There is a level of inequity of poverty and wealth that should be intolerable for all of us and for the church. And that's what Paul is arguing. But then Paul pushes even deeper. He goes from guilt to reason to their very heart. And he suggests that their giving will reveal the genuineness of their faith. And what he's building on is this idea, what we do with money reveals the nature of our heart. In chapter eight, verse eight, which is in our section here, Paul says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Basically, he's saying this, I wanna know if you really believe the gospel. Do you really believe the gospel? And what he's hinting at is generosity or lack of generosity reveals the authenticity and depth of your faith in Christ. Our generosity or our lack of generosity reveals the authenticity and depth of our trust and faith in Christ. We know this, look, money is a revealer. We've talked about this before. Money is a revealer of what we truly worship. And of course, it can be a source of salvation. It can be a God itself. So how do you know what you truly worship? Well, you, you follow the money trail. What do you spend money on effortlessly and easily? We all have things that we spend money on effortlessly and easily. So a couple examples. Do you spend money easily, effortlessly on appearance and clothes? If so, it's 
possible that your beauty or the approval of others or even some version of romance is really what you're looking at for meaning? Or do you spend money easily, effortlessly on food and drink? Great restaurants, great food. Then pleasure and comfort is the salvation you might be seeking. Some of you, of course, are not like that at all. You think it's really ridiculous to spend money on clothes or food or house or cars, vacations. You would never do that. You are much more frugal. You're very wise with your money. You save it, you store it away, you invest, good 401k, preparing for the future, always guarding for those things. And of course, in that case, money is used to reveal that security and control is your salvation. The object of worship, you desire security and control more than anything. Where you give your money effortlessly, easily, is an indicator of something that may be truly on the throne of your heart. And that's what Paul is getting at. When he says, your giving will test the genuineness of your love, love for the brothers and sisters in Christ and your love for Christ himself. And the challenge for all of us is we use our money, we all do, to gain acceptance, to find joy, to place our hopes in, our security, all the things that we are meant to find in Christ. We turn to our money to give us. But the gospel frees us. The gospel frees us from trusting in money and enables a radical generosity that truly frees us. You know, central to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this whole section that we read portions of, is God's grace. God's grace and generosity towards us underscores all of it. Generosity, Paul is saying, should be a response to and an outflow of God's grace to us. What God has done for us in the gospel not only enables, is not only an example, but it also empowers us to be able to live freely when it comes to our possessions and our wealth. So the gospel is on one level just an example of generosity. That's what Paul gets at on one part in verse 9, chapter 8, when he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ was rich. He had everything, but he gave it up, became poor for your sake, so that you and I who are poor might gain his wealth. That's the gospel. It's the incarnation and the cross. Jesus' great act of generosity towards us, of loving us and extending his grace and mercy towards us, giving us the undeserving, his wealth, his generosity towards us. When that sinks in, when that goes deep into your heart, it becomes not only an example, but also the power to live freely and generously. The gospel frees us from other sources of security and hope and identity and purpose and salvation. It says, everything I need, I have in Christ. I don't need to find it in the approval of men or women. I don't need to find it in the security of my investments. I don't need to find it in the pleasure of this world. I have everything in Christ because he has given everything to me. And so that frees us from the bondage that money can be to us and the blinding power of the love of money 
that is so natural in our world. And so I no longer need to use my money to gain approval or happiness or love from others or have hope in. I have it all in Christ. And at that point, money becomes just money. That's all it is. A means of exchange of value. All my hopes are not placed in it. I'm not finding my security in it, my joy in it, my happiness in it, my approval. It's just money. And then you become free. So how do we become practically generous people? I'm gonna push in a little bit harder into an area that I haven't always done. It's a word that some of you know because you grew up in certain churches and in others, it's, we haven't ever heard of it. It's the, the word tithe. So Paul doesn't say it here, but it's really underneath of practical generosity. The tithe was the Old Testament baseline for giving as the Jewish people were supposed to do as part of Israel. They were supposed to give a tenth of all of their income, which would have been sheep or, or crops. And so a tenth was the baseline. But when you added in all the other sacrifices and offerings between Passover and, uh, and Yom Kippur and all these days throughout the year, as well as when you had a firstborn goat of a goat, um, a mother goat, all these things that you had, you basically, the average Israelite would have given 20 to 25% of their income annually. When the New Testament comes along, Jesus never mentions the tithe. He simply says, give generously. In other words, give exorbitantly, and of course the baseline of the tenth was assumed. So here's the question. If I said the baseline for Christian generosity, the very baseline was 10%, does that sound like an awful lot of money? To give 10% of your gross income away. And the challenge is this, I think. If you're not struggling financially, if you're not struggling, if you are, if you're unemployed, if you're struggling financially, don't hear this, but if you're not struggling financially, but cannot imagine giving 10% of your income away, then who or what is really on the throne of your heart? Yeah, let's get out of that one. <laughs> Okay, let me make it even worse, though. Um, the implication of the Bible in the New Testament is a graduated tithe, meaning this. If you make thirty to $40,000 a year, giving away 10% of your wealth in this area would be incredibly hard, probably almost impossible. But if you make three hundred dollars to $400,000, 10% is not much at all. Or it shouldn't be. The Bible calls us to a radical generosity, but it's also a wise generosity. But the more money you make or are worth, the easier it is. We talked about it last week. The Gates or uh, you know, some of these people who have made billions of dollars, they give away 50, 50 million here, 50 million there, not much to them. It's not the amount, but you could give away half of your wealth if you were worth 500 billion, right? You still have 250 billion left. 50% is probably not much if you're worth billions. So that's the challenge and the call for us. It's not a hard number, but it is a call to say, as your income has increased through the years, 
as your income has increased or the financial dependency of family members has decreased or gone away, as your income has increased, has your percentage of giving increased? Or instead, the extent and income or the, the percentage of your spending? Has your giving increased or your spending increased? So here's what I'm gonna invite you to do, is to talk. Talk to other people. Figure out what is normative. How do you do this? What does it look like? Read some things, ask me, I'll send you some things. Examine your own heart and your own life and your own finances, and pray. Paul says, I want you to go out of what's in your heart when you've exposed your heart to the spirit and you've considered the gospel and you've laid your finances before God to do the same thing and then commit to a percentage floor for you. Maybe you're at like 1% giving. Commit to getting to two or three. If you've been giving 10% for years and you could go to 11 or 12 or 13, do that because in those steps, it's a push. It could be even sacrificial but it can also be incredibly and amazingly freeing. Give consistently and sacrificially. Maybe even have to ask this question, is there anything in my life that I cannot do because I'm just giving too much away? Is there anything in my life that I, I can't do because I give too much away? That's the point of sacrificial giving. Consistent, sacrificial giving. It's all built off of something that I think I want to end with here, and it's the manna principle, or the manna economy. Paul mentions it in chapter 8, verse 15, which we didn't read. He says this to the Corinthians. It's not that I want you to be poor and them to be rich or whatever, but that there would be some version of equity. Then he cites this. He says, remember how in the Old Testament, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He's talking about Exodus, when Israel is wandering in the wilderness and God provided manna. And the amazing thing about manna is the way that it lays out for us what God invites us into in trusting him with our resources. Manna was provided while they were in the wilderness as a daily sustenance. Every day, the amount of food they needed was provided. But the great thing about manna was you couldn't hoard it. You couldn't collect more, you just ate what, you, what was there. You couldn't even save it. You couldn't even think, well, I'm gonna be really wise and save for the next day. Because it turned into rotten, maggoty stuff overnight. What it did was cause them for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness, to cultivate a trust and obedience in God. It's the prayer that Jesus said when he said, give us this day our daily bread. God invites us to trust him with our, with our possessions, with our wealth, with our income. You know, the Bible never talks about self-sufficiency. We wanna be independent and self-sufficient. The Bible never talks about that. It talks about God's sufficiency and our dependence. And this goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's the difference between an abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset. When we are worried about our resources and we actually have enough, it is a scarcity mindset. Instead of trusting that there is enough, even as I give away as much as I can. Wisely give away, generously give away as much as I can. I think Paul is inviting the Corinthians, as Jesus invites us again and again in his parables and messaging, 
he's saying this. Paul is saying this. Do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to experience more of God? More freedom? More joy? One very easy way to do that is to give away more. Give consistently, sacrificially, freely, joyfully. Give away more of what you have for the work of God, for the care of the poor, for the extension of God's kingdom through his people. Give it away and experience more of the freedom and joy and pleasure and grace of God in your own life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the hope of the gospel, the grace of the gospel is that you, though you were rich, yet for our sakes you became poor, so that we, through, his, through your poverty, might become rich. Thank you, Jesus, that you did not withhold from us all that you had. Empower us to live in the freedom of your generosity towards us. Amen.